Broadcasting live to the world now. It's Sheila Zielinski. Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end-time watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this November 14th. 2015th Saturday night edition. I do broadcast Saturday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern right here on Worldwide Christian Radio and WINB. It is a pleasure to have you tuning into the program tonight. If you have not picked up a copy of my book, Green Gospel, subtitled The New World Religion, please do so by going to greengospel.ca. I believe that that is the most important book of our time, especially with what's coming up at COP21, the big climate change extravaganza in Paris. Frightening is to say the least. There is such incredible information in this book. And as Dr. Timothy Ball, the renowned climatologist, says, Sheila Zielinski's book effectively demolishes most of what you think you know. So again, very timely book pick up a copy, and do support my work by going to greengospel.ca. And please remember that this ministry is 100% uncensored, unbiased, and listener-funded. So if you think this is a worthy program to keep on the air, please do what you can. There is a donate button there at weekendvigilante.com. Folks, my guest today is Carl Tycrib. He is the founder of ForcingChange.org. He's an incredibly brilliant speaker, writer, and it is such a pleasure to finally have him on the show. I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while, and it is so good to have him on. Carl, welcome to the program. Great to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. I'm glad we're able to finally have a chance to do a show like this together. Well, you know, Carl, in my book, Green Gospel, I really unmask the green agenda. I touch on an eclectic mishmash of eugenics, depopulation, Fabian socialism, humanism, and oneism. Now, think about Aldous Huxley. His student, of course, was Orwell. You've got British eugenics going forward. If you go backwards, you have Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley. And I can't help but think of 1932, Brave New World, scientists seeking to control the population. You go forward, and Brother Julian Huxley, you've got UNESCO, the Humanist Manifesto. We really now seem to be Brave New World meets 1984, isn't it? It, it is. You know, we have the culmination of, of so much history moving forward so rapidly towards some type of utopian goal. And the environment plays a, a role in it, uh, global governance, transhumanism, the list goes on and on. There are so many, so many movements pushing us forward now into a new society. It's more or less a revolution of mind. And, and that's what we're witnessing at this point in time. Well, you know, Arthur C. Clarke said something in Childhood's End. He said, 50 years is ample time in which to change a world, and it's people 
almost beyond recognition. Tom Horn said something on my show one time. If my parents ever walked into a church today in the West, they'd run out screaming because nowadays we really have this blend of paganism interwoven into the church. I mean, you attended the biggest demonic cornucopia of all time, or as they call it, the Parliament of World Religion. That was recent. I'm sure that was quite the spectacle. It was really interesting. I mean, it was a a combination of 10,000 religious leaders, uh, religious and social activists, and uh, and people who were, were certainly working towards this concept of oneness. That came out from beginning to end, and it, it was... It had a number of agendas on its plate, climate change being one of them, uh, the empowerment of women in terms of becoming global actors, another, and then the the overall theme of oneness was something that wove through the entire event from one end to the other. You couldn't escape it. In fact, the very beginning of the event uh, uh, started off with the inaugural Women's Parliament, which was the first time that there was a special session just dedicated to women and women's empowerment. And songs were sung to Gaia, uh, and we, I'm saying that in, in a kind of a loose sense, what was really so, uh, songs were sung uh, to the idea of Mother Earth, and of course that's Gaia, but the concept being here that you're the Earth, you are Mother Earth walking. Uh, in fact, we opened up with a song entitled I Am the Earth, and then it went on, we, we had all kinds of different rituals and workshops and presentations uh, moving us towards this acceptance of oneness, uh, a new form of pagan, uh, new pagan concept of what society would look like. And I'm saying pagan, I went to a number of pagan sessions exactly on that. We're just wrestling through what a new pagan era now is, be- is beginning to look like. Uh, and, and really what it is, this issue is a return back to having our loyalties enmeshed in the earth. It is an earth-first, an earth-based sense of, of reality and value, and no longer, no longer a Judeo-Christian sense of values, uh, no longer Judeo-Christian sense of cosmology, where God is apart from man and nature, but a, n- a new cosmology, one that's really, really, it's new, but it's, it's rooted in ancient beliefs with the idea that man, nature, and God are all intrinsically one. Well, I mean, especially when you see this sort of eclectic mishmash of the who's who of the religions. You have Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs, and pagans, and you have Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelicals. It's a religious circus ridiculous. Now, the original parliament, that was kind of built around Chicago's World Fair that year. They had Charles Bonney, really Mr. East meets West. He was really a trailblazer in bringing this Hinduism to the West. He was sort of heading up the interfaith movement, sort of reclaiming the heart of our humanity, really, so to speak. But climate change was really an important piece of this conference, though. You mentioned that. And then, of course, you mentioned the main theme running through is sort of this oneism, this we are all one, we're all interconnected. You know, you can be like God. This is the same lie straight out of Genesis 3. You can become as God. It's still Satan peddling the same lie, isn't it? Well, and I'm glad glad you brought up the initial Parliament of World Religions. It took place, like I said, in 1893. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Swami Vivekananda was at that point the the one person who introduced Hinduism into the West in a significant way. And 
I had I've done a fair amount of, of homework uh, on the 1893 World's uh, Parliament of Religions, and so when I went to this one in Salt Lake City, uh, and this only happened a couple of weeks ago, Sheila, uh, the name of Swami Vivekananda came up on numerous occasions. There were special workshops for him. Um, his name was invoked in some of the prayers and, and in some of the plenaries, and I'm like, oh wow, uh, the vision that was cast already in 1893 where we understood that we had the essential unity of all religions couched in this package called oneness is something that still energizes this movement. And, and I mean, that was the history, but it was interesting to see how the history from 1893 was propelled into today. And of course, today, uh, 2015, we have different issues that we're working around in terms of interfaithism and climate change being one of them today that we are now, uh, we see this, this interaction with. That certainly wasn't there in 1893. Nobody was even thinking along, uh, along those lines. But what was interesting with the 2015 Parliament, Sheila, was that we had a climate change uh, plenary where Al Gore sent a special video message to the attendees. Uh, his daughter was the moderator for that plenary. And uh, the emergent church guru, Brian McLaren, gave a special session or a special uh, speech at that plenary on climate change. Well, and guess who else was there? Al Gore poster boy for this eco-friendly pagan pantheistic death cult. So, I mean, there was cult leader extraordinaire, the Dalai Lama, there was Jane Goodall, there was, what, 300 pages of programming? That's a little intimidating. And <laughs> it was. When I picked up the program, Sheila, on Wednesday, because uh, I got there the day before, it blew my mind how big the program was. And then to realize that you're one person and you're trying to, you're trying to get a handle on, of course, the bigger event, uh, the entire parliament from beginning to end, but all of a sudden with the realization that you have approximately 600 workshops, lectures, movie showings, uh, discussion groups and panels and plenaries to choose from over the course of five days. Six. Hundred, you would need a really significant team of researchers to be able to cover it all. So I, I had to pick and kind of choose uh, what would be the themes that I was was going to try to work with the most when I was there, and that was for myself uh, paganism because I see that's where things are moving. Of course, I wanted to attend the plenaries because that's where the the major speeches were being made. Uh, and then I attended a workshop on the Earth Charter because already back in at, at the year 2000, I was a delegate to the United Nations Millennium Forum. We had a special working session with Stephen Rockefeller, and the Earth Charter was introduced to us before it was even unveiled publicly. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of get a, a handle of where some of this was all going. As a researcher, it had a, a, you know some long interests in some of these movements. Carl, were you surprised that the Imam of the Grand Mosque of Mecca was there? The Sheikh, the Imam of the Grand Mosque of Mecca was there giving his so-called blessing? I mean, if this isn't a cornucopia of demonology, I don't know what is. Everybody was there, including the uh, introduction into the West of the ayahuasca religion, which is uh, it's a religion that comes out of Brazil and uh, is built around... Uh, uh, the substance, certain substances, tropical substances that, when infused into a tea, um, produce hallucina hallucinations 
uh, almost like an LSD form of, of exper uh, experiential psychedelic encounter. And so that was introduced to us as, as a legitimate religion. I mean, ayahuasca has been around for a while, but this was the first time it had entered mainstream uh, North America through the Parliament of World Religions. So that was quite fascinating. Well, you know what this reminds me of, Carl? It reminds me of a rehashing of the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. Environmentalism is us, basically the forerunner, Maurice Strong, the poster boy sort of for environmentalism. Look at Boutros Boutros' remarks. This really was kind of a starting pistol this year, this 1992 Earth Summit. I talk about a lot in my book. It was kind of the central springboard for creating a spiritual contract with nature, because after all, we need a new contract with the great goddess. I mean, Al Gore said that in his book, Earth in the Balance. Mother Earth, the divine great goddess, the great goddess Gaia, these CO2-emitting plebs are giving the great goddess a fever. That's really an overtone of this great goddess, isn't it? Yes, and the thing that struck me when I went to the Parliament of World Religions was the theme, and it was a very palpable theme, and that is a return to the goddess. So many of the working sh uh, sessions I went to on paganism were about the return of the goddess, uh, encountering the goddess, how the goddess is, uh, is, is brought through history, and how, how, it en how she enters today's uh, system. Uh, uh, Marianne Williamson was there, famous New Age author, talking about the Divine Mother, how we're all uh, priestesses, I went to the women's session where that came out in spades. There was a hallway with, I believe, I counted 89, but I may have miscounted. There may have been 90, but I, I, I counted 90 um, various, various mosaics and pictures of goddesses uh, that were hung in one of the main hallways. So this theme from beginning to end was there. But that makes sense if you understand that we are moving away from a... Uh, a, a Christian paradigm, and indeed we've actually moved away from that for quite some time, and now we're, we're, we're entering an, an age that goes beyond postmodern. Postmodernism is still with us, uh, that's for sure, but we've entered a, an age past that, one that recognizes that our future, our future cosmology fits with an ancient paradigm, and that's the return of the goddess, that's the return of paganism. That is the centering of our loyalties to the earth. It absolutely, you couldn't have said that better. This really is postmodernism on steroids. It's this theme also woven through, you talked about they had this sort of women empowerment thing. I mean, Oprah's new film production was on review, workshops on deep ecology and religion, which is woven in the papal encyclical that the Pope issued back in June this year. I mean, we really see it all culminating, this sort of convergence of this God is out, guy is in, really, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Uh, but that, again, fits with the changeover that we've been experiencing now for almost, well, in terms of at least since the 1960s, uh, when we saw the first Earth Day introduced on uh, April the 22nd, 1970. Since that point on, the 60s with its radicalization of our youth, uh, the, the desire for a new era, the age of Aquarius, the first Earth Day, the sexual revolution, the environmental revolution, all of this was taking place already 45, almost 50 years ago, some of it already older than that, but what, what we're seeing now, Sheila, is that that revolution that started half a century ago 
is now beginning to gain momentum and traction because we have an entire generation that has been educated in that line of thinking. Subtly, yes. Overtly, absolutely. There's times when that's taken place, but we have been educated to that end. And so this is what we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing the reshaping of society back in the image that was laid out in the 1960s and early 1970s. Absolutely. Well, and it really is, as you said, a slow acclimation, the frog in the boiling water. But the transhumanist movement, it really also embraces this Genesis 3 idea that you can become like gods. They have this notion that science and technology, the era that we live in now, of course, can improve human mental and physical characteristics. I mean, it views sickness and aging and death as that's just unnecessary hindrances. We have the right to overcome these unnecessary hindrances. And our body, our brain, it's just due for an upgrade. Now, you went to a really interesting transhumanism conference. Talk about that. Uh, I've been to a few of them, both uh, in the real world with myself going, and then also I've I've gone to a number of them in the virtual world of Second Life, uh, where I go in as my avatar in a virtual world, and uh, I've been to to a few different uh, transhumanist events, including the the Global Future 2045 Congress that took place in New York. I was there uh, for that particular event, and then I also was uh, that same year, 2013. Uh, a guest speaker at the Mormon Transhumanist Association, their annual meeting, where I was invited to give a Christian criticism of religious transhumanism. And and it's interesting how the transhumanist world itself has has seen a lot of uh, a lot of pressure to change in certain ways. At one time, transhumanism, that ideology, uh, would would fit more along the lines of uh, secular humanism, an advanced form of secular humanism. There's been a shift, and and you're seeing that the shift is going towards more along the lines of uh, of spirituality, and we are now entering an age where transhumanism and spirituality uh, comes together in in much more in a much more visible way, and that came through at the 2013 conference in New York City, the Global Future 2045 event, uh, where Dmitry Itzkov started off the event by talking about uh, spirituality. And then as we saw some of the most incredible gadgets and theoretical uh, advances in science and technology, he ended it with an interfaith panel discussing the the ability now that we have to become gods and a god-like race of civilization. And so that was very eye-opening in that spirituality was completely infused from beginning to end with that particular event. And of course, on the Mormon side, uh, the Mormon Transhumanist Association is is one of the better known, one of the more well known uh, organizations where this where this dialogue and this discussion is taking place uh, within religions because it's not just Mormons who are involved, but there are, are people from a, a wide variety of different religions and and there are atheists as well who are involved with the Mormon Transhumanist Association uh, wrestling through what transhumanism looks like. But of course, it has a a Mormon flavor because that's the the foundation that that particular organization is built upon. And I always talk about Carl how these Holly well how I I call them not Hollywood but Helly weird science fictions they seem so 
far-fetched, but these are the kind of very dehumanizing, transhumanist overtones and technologies that are available. Look at, you know, you can start from G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra with the nanobugs, Avatar, Minority Report, Gattaca, Elysium, Transcendence, Lucy, all this. I mean, it's really this intense cross-pollination between the computer, the biotech, the nanotech, robots and humans fusing. It's a very macabre, creepy trend also that's going towards this intimate interaction with machines. Like you see the, the Siri software, Google Now, technology trying to understand us. It's this intimate interface, doesn't it? It is. Uh, and, and it is, you know, there's such a variety of gadgets and such a variety of technology and scientific discoveries that now speak into the idea of transhumanism. But I'm glad that you brought that list of movies up because Hollywood has really been preaching to us. And they've been preaching to us both in the positive sense of transhumanism, but they've been also preaching to us in, in a type of dystopian transhumanist uh, nightmare. You can think of things like, oh, the Terminator series. Even the Matrix, uh, where the the transhumanist dreams and goals and visions are are wrapped up within uh, ugliness and within a certain amount of horror. And I, I've had some good discussions with transhumanists. I've had I've had people who I consider friends who are transhumanists. We completely disagree, but ironically. We see uh, the the interest that we both have in this because we are human beings. Uh, how even the transhumanist community itself goes, okay, we don't have a handle of what this looks like for its end result, for its end goal. While they have dreams of and hopes and aspirations of a better world, there's there's no parameters that will necessarily stop them. There's no there's no gatekeeper, so to speak, that says don't go down this road. It leads to destruction. In fact, I find Sheila, it's quite the opposite. It's whatever road is open to us, we take that road. And and consequences, well, we'll have to deal with that maybe afterwards. I know some transhumanists who themselves are worried by the idea that the transhumanist community may may very well go down this road where we we end up in a, a situation where we destroy so much of what we do. We we end up kind of opening Pandora's box. Yes. You know, kind of, we're going to create hell on earth, you know, if, as long as we can do this thing, we're going to, I'm not so concerned, let me just rephrase this, I'm not so concerned that the transhumanist dream even comes to fruition. I am more concerned what kind of hell on earth they unleash in proving that this can be done. And in talking to some transhumanists who understand that, they too are rightly concerned. But, you know, it's still like kind of full speed ahead. We're racing down this road, and whatever comes, is, is, it's going to be better. That's not necessarily so. You mentioned the Strategic Social Initiatives Conference. Russ Dizdar was there as well, the Global Futures 2045 International Congress. And the whole theme was towards a new strategy for human evolution. Ray right. Kurzweil was there, as you mentioned, Demetrius Kopp. Now, Ray Kurzweil's really kind of emerged, Carl, as this major poster boy for the transhumanist movement, the champion of singularities, credited with saying, consider how often you update the software on your computer, yet the software in our bodies, that's never been updated for millennia, and it's now obsolete. I mean, in this whole frightening global futures thing, you have, again, you have these pioneers for the race for immortality by advancing these 
models capable of changing the human consciousness. So it's kind of a four-part attack against death. Now, this Avatar project, I know Deborah Way was talking about it, and she says the quote, you know, we need to look at a spiritually enlightened future. Funny how they throw these spiritually enlightened. We have to take brains, transport it into avatars, and they talk about this re-brain reverse engineering, which will enhance the understanding of our consciousness. I mean, that is really, really, are we becoming something that's not even redeemable? I mean, unsanctioned by God, really. That's the frightening part. Yes, you know, uh, again, how far they can proceed with, with the ideas of transhumanism, how far it eventually will go, or how far it realistically can go, uh, is certainly up for debate. I honestly, this is myself, I don't think that for the average person it will go near as far as, as what men like Ray Kurzweil are suggesting it could. But where where I have some uh, areas of concern is... Uh, is in terms of the loss of privacy. Privacy is already gone. We have to admit that privacy is already done. But new layers of of adding uh, uh, technology into our lives that that we can't disconnect ourselves from anymore. I mean, we live in a society now, Sheila, where 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 we are so tightly wound up and so tightly wired up with everything else. Uh, there's only one road, and it seems the road forward, where we enmesh ourselves even more. It is increasingly difficult to disconnect. And so if you, all of a sudden you come around and, and you have this transhumanist vision, uh, regardless of, of whether it only goes halfway as far as, as men like Ray Kurzweil think it might, uh, you, you end up still running into a situation where you have a world, uh, it makes 1984 and Big Brother, that whole concept, almost look Mickey Mouse. Uh, the potential to to manipulate population groups is just phenomenal. And, I mean, I'm already watching, Sheila, how social media manipulates and changes behaviors, uh, people's people's goals. It changes, it certainly changes worldviews. And now take that and add that into even even a deeper, more enhanced level. And uh, we we seem to be living in uh, um, an absolute, uh, you know, on the on the edge of an absolutely different society than than what we than what you and I were born into. That's for sure. Well, with this this true synthetic biology again, the biotech, the nanotech. This is really the ultra high tech dream of these new world mad scientists to use radical advancements in technology, augmenting the human body. Look at the DARPA programs. It's human body and mind ultimately meriting that label as post-human. That's what concerns me because augmenting people to the point, Carl, where they're no longer able to call themselves human. I mean, this is Huxley's 21st century vision of a scientific dictatorship, really, isn't it? I know, and that is certainly one of the big concerns. Uh, and it is also concerned with some transhumanists, but the the attitude of we still go forward, I, I find troubling. Uh, for, for many of them, that's still there. We still go forward, regardless of what, what danger signals we see flashing at us. Uh, but yes, we are, we are certainly entering an age now where uh, this concept of, of control takes on, or has a potential to take on some, some completely new dimensions. Uh, the other thing, Sheila, that, that I find troubling too is with transhumanism is that it places, in my view, a false hope in the works of our hands. 
as if as if science and technology itself will save us. It will save us temporally and eternally. Uh, and, and this false hope then takes it and, and shifts our attention away from what, from a Christian view, is the real hope, and that is Jesus Christ. I had a, a chance a few years ago, this is back at the Global Futures 2045 Congress, to spend some time with uh, James Martin, who was, uh, at that point in time, uh, one of the more influential figures in the uh, computer industry, specifically the history of networking. And I had interviewed him for a short time at the Congress. Uh, we went for a brief walk. We had a good conversation. He invited me for lunch. I couldn't go because I had another uh, interview that I had to be a part of at the event. And so we, we, we went our separate ways. And we'd had this, this nice chit-chat as we were walking along from the Empire Hotel back to the Lincoln Center. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to be able to spend some time and really pick uh, his brain or, and, and just to see why, why this hope, because he had placed his hope on this. And then a week and a half later or so, I, I received an email. He, he had died wow. uh, just off the, uh, and was found by a, a sea kayaker just off the Bermuda Island uh, mansion estate that he owned. And uh, James Martin was gone. And I thought to myself, how sad. I mean, I, I really felt wow, what, what, what a waste. I mean, this is, this is horrible. This is utterly horrible. You placed your hopes and dreams in science and technology that somehow, somehow, uh, this would overcome your problem of aging and death, and you certainly didn't live to see it. Only a week and a half after you made the grand pronouncements, you're dead. The, that is ultimately the situation we all find ourselves in. I, I don't know how much longer I have. You don't know how much longer you have. We all have this date that we that we have in front of us that, that where we breathe our last. And as a Christian, I look at that and I go, well, you know, I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who was the firstborn from the dead, which is what the New Testament tells us, the one who, as the author of life, overcame death, which makes sense if he is the creator of all, the author of life. I'll put my faith and trust in him. But to put my faith and trust in my own hands, Sheila, I, you know, there are days I, I don't even want to get out of bed. I, I, <laughs> we are a fallen uh, and broken species. And while we can do all kinds of incredible things, while we can make stuff and build things and create incredible technologies, there are limitations that we have. And, and we battle against those limitations all the time and hope that somehow we will find a way to save ourselves. And that's always been the case. Well, and that's the big thing here, Carl, is God is sovereign. He's in charge. And the earth is in his benevolent control. All this earth worship, the church needs to understand that God is the creator. You're not to worship the creation these people right. are worshiping the creation. God is the divine creator. And so, I mean, look at Isaiah chapter 40 lays out. God holds nature in his hands. So the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, human wisdom is, it doesn't even register in God's magnormity. I mean, if that's a word, I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's such an incredible thing to think that we are so arrogant that we can go ahead and say, you know, move aside, God, we're going to do something with these outdated, obsolete humans. It's ultra pride and arrogance, isn't it? 
It, it, there, there's an element of that, no question. There's also an element of, of uh, how do I say this, of goodwill, where the intentions may be good. The, the understanding that, that comes is, yes, we, we've got all kinds of problems, death is in front of us, uh, and, and we've got all kinds of other, other issues that the media tells us, that politicians tell us, climate change, uh, the environmental issue, on and on and on. And so while there's an element, a side to it that is very hubristic of that, there is no mistaking it. There's also another side, and I've seen this personally because I've rubbed shoulders of these people, where they have genuine good intentions. They believe that they are working to make a better world and that they've placed their hope and trust that somehow, somehow, in doing this together, we can find a way to save ourselves. Now, it may be good intentioned, but it's still misplaced. And indeed, the, the cliche that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I hate to say this, it's more than just a cliche. And, and so there, I've, I've witnessed both sides. I've witnessed those who hold to a, a very grand sense of self and humanity a type of humanistic humorist that uh, sometimes just blows you out of the water how grand this is and how big the vision is. And then I've also witnessed the other side uh, where well-meaning people with good intentions still, in, in my view, go down the wrong road to find a path of salvation. Salvation for the earth, salvation for the self and the problems of self. This whole plan really includes men and women bowing down to things, to idols, in fealty to a god of their own creation, really. This is an overarching theme, especially in oneness. And the ultimate message of the Bible, it's not one of doom and gloom. It's rather hope and redemption when Jesus Christ returns. The church and the earth itself will be, the Bible tells us, it'll be redeemed by Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. We have this blessed assurance and hope through the return of our Lord Jesus that he's going to set up his kingdom. So, I, I mean, I think it's really important that we protect the Christian values. I mean, they're radically under attack. I mean, radical environmentalism really has become a new religion. It's woven itself in the church. You've got these guys like CFR member Rick Chrislam Warren trying to fuse Christianity and Islam together. You've got all these evangelicals going for a one-world religion. And, of course, you know, you've got this COP21 coming up in Paris. It's really the big show towards global governance, isn't it? And that's really what this is about, is the end-time prophetic eschatology tells us that that's what we're marching towards, a very antichrist, one-world global authority, isn't it? Well, you know, I take a look at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, the events that we see laid out in Genesis, and I see parallels with the end. And indeed, I think the the end has to parallel the beginning to some point. Uh, the entire Babel event is one of human unity coming together, shaking its fist at God uh, through the works of our own hands, uh, creating our own sense of, of purpose, creating our own sense of security. It is the idolatry that comes through our grand vision of what we can do. And it is about the we not even about the me anymore. It is always couched now in the idea of the group dynamic. The individual, in terms of the New Age back in the 1990s, was seeking self-enlightenment and self-empowerment. That still exists, but really the focus now is on the we. It is about the Babel, the building of that tower city edifice, where we come together in human solidarity and say, we're going to do it our way. And God, you are not included in this picture. 
Now, I see the end as something that, that needs to mirror this to some extent. And indeed, that's very much what we're seeing today, where, where mankind is coming together in the we, the group, the collective, and, and however you look at it. And, and COP21, this climate change conference, fits that model in terms of global governance, global, a global strategy. This is going to be, an, we're going to look to create enforceable um, management systems and structures, including pricing carbon, pricing uh, fossil fuels, putting on special taxation systems. And of course, you and I as, as Canadians, now that we have Justin Trudeau in in uh, the driver's seat in, in our country, uh, we know what he already ran on, and, and he's going to start looking at levying uh, uh, Carbon, carbon taxes and higher, higher costs for fuel usage. And of course, in our country, uh, we just happen to be the second largest landmass on the planet next to Russia only, uh, with a, a minuscule population of only, what, 33, 35 million uh, across a huge, huge area. We are energy intensive. If we want to move any amount of goods from one part of the country or even just one city to another, we're going to pay for it. We're going to pay for it in spades. Uh, I'm, that's something I'm afraid of in the, um, you could say in the short term, but all of it really fits this idea that in the long term, we're trying to create a new world. We're reshaping the world in our image, how we want it to look. And, and that fits again back to that pagan green agenda that you talked about early on, earlier on. We place our, our loyalties now to the idol of our earth. I was thinking of this big global government. I mean, Adolf Hitler and a guy who he liked, Karl Marx, they would have salivated at the idea, Karl, of hijacking the very air we breathe, that God-given necessary byproduct for life, demonizing CO2 as a deadly pollutant. I mean, carbon tax, that's a fine for breathing, that National Socialism Party. That really was sort of an ancient fertility cult brought up to guys under modern-day eugenics. And I think this, all this sacrifices for fecundity of nature, the fertility, the sacrifice, the eugenics, it's all really masked in this agenda. You mentioned earlier in the program the deep ecology being a forerunner at this conference. It's woven into everything. Even the father of deep ecology, Aldo Leopold, he actually said that environmentalism was really the biggest focus. And, and Hitler even he even said himself, he complained that Christianity was itself the greatest protest against nature. This really does smack of global fascism, doesn't it? It, it is. And fascism, people are automatically think right away right wing because we have this erroneous view of what is right and what is left. But fascism is about a collectivizing approach between government, business, unions and what you could call those special interest groups that help to shape policy and help to shape uh, civilization. Going back to part of our conversation earlier where we talked a little bit about the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, that that was, you could call it the catalyst that brought all this into play. I've got a quote for you, and this is a quote that came from a, a document uh, that was released in 1990, two years before the Rio Summit. Two years before that event, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, my home province, my home capital, we had a special meeting uh, where we brought together, I believe it was a two to 3,000 world political leaders, environmental groups, uh, to look at, at developing strategies to help the Rio Earth Summit move along and kind of give it the, the energy it needed. While the 
the outcomes that were that were laid out in the 1990 document never came to fruition to the extent that they hoped it did. I'm going to read you a quote from there because it fits this idea of fascism, of, of wow, can you just imagine what kind of a, of a world we would have if this worldview becomes the embedded official worldview? Here's the quote taken from this particular document, Sustainable Development for a New World Agenda. The issues are not about if a global politics is necessary. The question is, how do we achieve binding agreements in law, complete with effective programs for applying sanctions against non-compliance that would oblige each nation, regardless of size, to abide by a set of principles that are required to guarantee the survival of life on this earth? Now, Sheila, that's quite the mouthful, but basically he's saying we need global law, a global politics. It's not about if, it is about we need it. It goes on to say, Perhaps we will find there is no other alternative to a system of rigid controls that some would equate to a police state. Unfortunately, in order to save the planet from biocide, there have to be very powerful constraints from doing the wrong things. The constraints must transcend national boundaries, be world around, and enforceable. There would be a need for an agency for preventing eco-vandals from acting unilaterally. I went on to talk about how if sanctions don't work, then physical occupation would be necessary, installing a world trusteeship that would impose its its rules and management system on, on top of an offending nation. On and on it went. And this was uh, under Chapter 2, titled Toward a Global Green Constitution, two years before the Rio Summit, and it was one of the preparatory summits or one of the preparatory conferences leading up to it. And this is why... Taking the time to, to do your homework on these events are, is it's so important. Not sometimes what the events themselves say, like the Rio Summit, but what were some of the ideas that were thrown around in the preparatory meetings? Just like at COP21 coming up in only a couple of weeks from us, uh, what's more important in some respects is, is looking at some of the agendas that were placed already beforehand. So that gives you a sense of the direction, of the ultimate direction that they want to take this. Yes, that's so true. And Carl, consider what was used as the invocation at that 1992 Rio summit. They said, from the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of men, let light descend on earth, the purpose which the masters know and serve let light, love, and power restored on this planet. Now, the source of light in that great invocation is Lucifer, and the plan, quote-unquote, intends to implement world government and religion grounded in occultic power. The creed, the whole thing is part of the great invocation based in theosophy. It was a blend of Eastern and Western religions, really closely aligned with Vedic Hinduism. Although the Theosophical Society originally started in New York in the late 1800s, it wasn't until Alice Bailey, a hardcore Luciferian, broke away from the society in the early 1900s and created Lucifer Trust that gain power in America. But this all is surprisingly echoed mantra in the Pope's encyclical as he pushes for a one world global authority. And I mean, look at UN and Greenpeace International, all these speeches all have these very new age concepts of the new world order, this world order that, of course, Alice Bailey claims her ascended master in her 24 books of the occult helped her construct this idea of the return of the godmen, the goddesses. I mean, this is really part of this exalted hierarchy of demigods that secretly guides the affair of humanity. And this is what these people, they believe this stuff. 
Uh, and I have spent time with people uh, who, who are very much uh, actually holding those beliefs. When I was at the United Nations Millennium Forum, the, the Great Invocation was passed around. Uh, in fact, one of the organizations that, that was a key sponsor of that particular event was Luce's Trust. And so there, there is this carryover. The very first global event I'd ever been to uh, was a, a conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, your part of the world. Back in 1997, it was the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, where Robert Mueller, uh, who at that time was a retired high official from the United Nations, wanted to help Canada introduce his world core curriculum and that philosophy of his world core curriculum and embed that in our Canadian education system. And so that particular event, it was, they didn't hide the fact that this was about becoming divine, that you're all living units of the divine cosmos. They didn't hide the fact that there was a theosophical Lucis trust because he, he much of his belief came from, from that organization and, and the teachings of, of Alice Bailey. They didn't hide this stuff. The language was there. The references were there. And it was like, I went to that conference going, uh, walking away from it going, golly, if we don't get our head out of the sand, uh, we're, we're going to have a whole new generation who believes this stuff and, have, and they won't have a clue how they believe it, why they believe it, or where it came from. But the beliefs held by people like Alice Bailey uh, now come forward. And like I said, I've witnessed it firsthand. It is definitely there. We talked about this earlier, this whole sort of inculcation of all this seemingly so benevolent, though, because when you throw out these terms like eco-friendly and we're all carbon neutral and we're sustainable, really looks, as you said, it's the greater good, the common imperative, the moral imperative. That theme is woven in through this climate encyclical. And so, you know, you look back at the Earth Summit, you look at Agenda 21, this brainchild of the good old Marxist New Age Rothschild, and you look at Maury Strong and these key players, it's not surprising when you springboard into what we're looking at now, you always hear this term social equity, social justice being thrown around because biodiversity and social justice and sustainability, it all sounds so benevolent, but it's not. Well, and this is one of the things I think we need to watch for with this coming up uh, United Nations Climate Conference. Uh, again, this is, a go this is going to take place only in a couple of weeks from now in Paris. One of the things, and I haven't seen it on their agendas, but I'm kind of wondering where it'll pop up is the idea of creating an international court for the environment. And the reason I say that is because uh, the World Federalist Movement, which is one of the longest-running pro-world government advocacy and lobbying groups, this particular group, which is completely pro-world government, that's, that's the whole idea of world federalism, gave us uh, the International Criminal Court. I, I embedded myself at a World Federalist Movement uh, Congress in 2012, and one of, the, one of the concepts that was birthed at that event was what we need, ultimately, is an international court for the environment. And so I haven't seen this coming out in the COP21 papers yet, but I'm just curious to, to kind of note where where that idea may come, where it may stem, uh, you know, kind of kind of birth into this idea uh, of COP21. And um, just watch. I, I'd, I'd certainly encourage your, your listeners uh, to consider what the ramifications of an international court on the environment would look like. Um, what we're seeing here is, 
is creating a legal framework. And that's important for people to realize that this coming up Paris conference is supposed to be about, it's supposed to be about creating a universal legal framework. The rules we're all supposed to live by. And what that means, in essence, is you need some type of an enforcement mechanism and some type of a judicial mechanism to make sure that that we're all playing by the same rules. So what, what we're seeing is the birth of, of some type of a quasi-world government. That's I know some people say, well, that's conspiracy theory. Well, you know something? It's not. It's been around for a long, long time. Yes. But we're just now seeing the more the technical details of what this looks like uh, bumping into events like COP21. Well, and do you find it so interesting, concurrent to all of this, Obama is establishing this UN police force. And on the heels of that, you have people like good old Naomi Oreska. She's an affiliate professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard. There's people that are calling for, they like the idea, Carl, of having climate deniers prosecuted under RICO. You know, anybody that disagrees with these people, they're deemed as these I'm a climate criminal, according to a website, and I should be dealt with in the harshest way. I'm being sued for my book because, of course, I call out David Suzuki, Michael Mann, a lot of these hucksters at the IPCC. I mean, this is really quite a campaign to silence people. But at the same time, then you have the establishment of this very draconian UN police force. I mean, that's certainly interesting timing, isn't it? It, it is. Uh, your, your listeners need to keep in mind, though, that the idea of creating a global police force has been around for a long time. I can trace it back to at least uh, the turn of last century, uh, back to before World War One. In fact, 1912, there were, were uh, there were already plans at that point. There were plans even before that. Uh, where where I think it's interesting as Canadians. Uh, and I know you have a global audience, but I, I know I know you and I were we share the same nationality, we share the same country. It, here's something you may not be aware of, but in 1995, under our liberal government, uh, we instituted a foreign policy and and put this in paper. We put it in print that this would be part of our foreign policy, and that is the creation of a United Nations Rapid Reaction Force, a military rapid reaction kind of a world SWAT force under the command and control of the United Nations, along with an international intelligence uh, mechanism that would work with it, and a global tax to help pay for this. Now. We've already put that in, uh, literally in government documents, and I have the document here. Uh, you can you can probably still get it if you if you hunt around for it. But uh, in 1995, that was our government's official, one of its official foreign policy uh, dreams or visions. And obviously, it didn't happen. There's a lot of, of complexity that took place afterwards as they attempted to create a, a standby unit in Denmark. Uh, but here, again, what we're talking about is an idea that's it's not new, it's old, it's been around for a while, but it's going to have to really start to come into its own uh, and be accepted, uh, especially as we, we are now being, being forced into this world where we are interconnected. We're forced into the idea of, of being one. And if you don't go along with the oneness, if you are, are a separating entity, if you are causing division and chaos, well then you don't fit in and there has to be some type of mechanism to ensure uh, that, that, your, that your cancerous ideas aren't spread. That's kind of the, the feeling you get. In fact, 
In fact, when I was at the Parliament of World Religions, that kind of feeling was both was both there implicitly, and there was times when it was talked about explicitly, that those who are who are bringing about the vision and have this separating view, uh, they're the ones who are the troublemakers, and we need to all get along. We need to work together as one. Of course, it's utopian in its in its worldview. It's utopian in its outset, and it's utopian in its in its final vision. But uh, I'm afraid those kinds of utopian dreams end up becoming utopian nightmares uh, if they're not checked by reality and and by people who have a sound mind. Well, and the good old prophet of hope, United Nations Robert Mueller, Mr. Deeply Spiritual, his pal Lucille Green, a longtime world government activist, she was talking about this whole concept you just touched on in a memoir of hers, Journey to a Governed World. She said the most urgent item on the planetary agenda is to set the limits of freedom and order in supranational global affairs. What do we need? We need a constitution for the world. Becoming a global citizen, that's really what they want with new paradigm of thinking. And that's all the crux, really, of this global social change is they want us to think differently. And that's really their desire, isn't it, to shape and mold According to man's image, the, it's it just goes back to what Satan tried to do in the garden. It's all the same theme playing out. It's day one, right out of the garden, isn't it? Yes, it is. And back to the back to the Tower of Babel. That's exactly what we're talking about. This is the Tower of Babel. We have a Babel syndrome, and, and this plays out in the technology sector through transhumanism. This plays out through the green, uh, the the deep green, deep ecology side. This plays out through global governance. This plays out in so many spectrums and in so many areas. But we really have a Babel syndrome, and we can't break away from that Babel syndrome. Uh, if we did, we would realize that there is really only one authority that we could turn to, and that authority is not us. It's not our collective self. It is rather the one who's outside of creation, the one who is outside of space, the one who is outside of the created world, and that is the author of life, that is Jesus Christ himself. But we're not going to do that. We are not going to bend our knee to him because we are building our tower, and that is where we're going to find our security. That's where we're going to find our hope. That, unfortunately, is the Babel syndrome. And the beginning, where we see the Tower of Babel complex in Genesis come to fruition, and, and, and the judgment that comes with that, I believe we're going to see a judgment as well as we move forward building this new Tower of Babel. All other roads lead to dead ends. Jesus Christ really is the truth, the life, the way. No man come under the Father except through the Son. And yet, you know, it's so interesting that there really is also a push for this demolition of Christianity here in the West, isn't there? Yes, there is. Uh, and, and, you know, your listeners need to understand that that's going to intensify. Uh, I hate to say it, it will seriously intensify. Um, but, you know, it's intensified before in other parts of the world. Uh, and we will we will experience it here too. We already are uh, on the peripherals and on certain social issues, but I believe that with time we probably will experience even even harsher examples of this. In the waning moments, what do you think is the answer for this for the listeners, Carl? Well, number one, get your own head out of the sand. Don't don't for one minute think that somehow you're able to save yourself or that mankind can save us all. It isn't through man's. Uh, 
uh, strength. It isn't through our technology, through our through our political management. Uh, first of all, you need to you need to place your faith in the one who will save you, and that is Jesus Christ. The other thing you need to do is just understand the times that we're living in, so that you don't become a gullible participant. And I find so many Christians are gullibly participating with this building of a, of a new Tower of Babel. Uh, so those are the, those are two very important areas. And then thirdly, just be able to to see where it's already impacting your community, your family, your church. And then, and this is tough. This is really tough, but intact and with facts, speak into it with love and with truth. And it's easy to get caught up in the emotion. I've done it, but at the same time, we really need to work on having our our facts there and do it in love and truth. Amen. Well, I couldn't have ended on a better note. Carl, give out your website again for the folks and how people can sign up and get involved with what you do over there at Forcing Change. Well, our website is forcingchange.org. We have a a blog that we update occasionally on, on what we're doing. Uh, we have a monthly publication, monthly monthly uh, news news magazine. Uh, one thing that we are doing is uh, I'm working right now on a manuscript. So in the very near future, uh, we're looking at, at changing and, and reformatting a lot of what we do in terms of forcing change and on the magazine side. Uh, but you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter too. Uh, just look for forcing change. Or type in my name, Carl Tiger, Google it, or simply go to forcingchange.org, and uh, you can you can follow us uh, going through that website. Well, Carl, it's been such a pleasure. I've been a longtime fan of yours. Just such a pleasure to have you on the program, and I do hope you come back and see us soon. Thanks, Sheila. Have yourself a great evening. Thank you, Carl. God bless. Folks, that was Carl Tycrib, forcingchange.org. Do bookmark and check out that site. I do appreciate everyone that tuned in to tonight's broadcast again for the month of November. I will be only airing Saturday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern. There will not be a Monday to Friday show. I am hoping to return full time to the air in December. But if resources do not come in, then there's a good possibility the show will get cut entirely. I don't want that to happen. I certainly know that God is taking a bit of a turn in this ministry. I do hope that you lift me up in prayer. You keep me in your prayers. I have put a lot of hard work into this show for the past five years, and I do certainly hope that you think it is worthwhile to keep on the air. But that is the reality that I face. So I do hope that you prayerfully consider financially supporting this ministry Again, I just want to remind people, I do all this on my own. I don't have a staff of people. I don't have some big offices. I do all my own guest booking. I do all my own research. I do all my own editing. I do all my own broadcasting. I do all my own podcasting. And so it is a tremendous challenge for me to even keep on the air with airtime costs. And so I'm asking people to step up to the plate and support my show and ministry. I think it is a very important ministry, and I hope you think so too. So remember, weekendvigilante.com. There is a donate button there, and folks, please do get behind my ministry. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight to this broadcast. We'll see you next Saturday. Good night, and God bless.